0: All right, let's get into the Word of God. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and Lord willing, we're going to finish 2 Samuel Samuel tonight, and Second uh, Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to actually kind of bounce from 23 to 24 and then come back to 23 uh, as we go through this tonight. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the wonderful worship. Uh, We so appreciate Tim uh, being willing to step in and lead worship tonight. And Lord, uh, we just want to magnify your name, glorify you. And uh, as that song was, because of who you are, you're all worthy of our praise. And so, Lord, now as we enter into your word, we ask for you to teach us by your Holy Spirit. God, we have many things to learn as we grow in you. Uh, Lord, we look forward to looking more and more like the leader and the believer that you want us to be. We want to we want to resemble you, Jesus Christ. So we pray now that you'd open up your Word, convict us of sin and rebellion, exhort us in righteousness, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's keep reading, David. okay so here we are, Second, Second Samuel twenty three, as we're getting close to finishing. Uh, The chapter, uh, we're going into David's last words. And uh, starting at verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. Now, we're not going to see David pass in 2 Samuel. Samuel. That's going to happen actually in 1 Kings. But uh, this psalm is recorded, and this is what he says. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And I'm going to pause there for a minute. Already these words are pretty inspiring when, when you just consider them for a moment. The fact that David uh, just recalls who he is, the son of Jesse, if you remember last week, that term was actually used in a derogatory term to say that, that he wasn't worthy of his kingdom. And David knows full well he's not worthy of the kingdom, but he's chosen for the kingdom. He's chosen by his God, the, the one who actually owns all of Israel and has anointed David to be king. Thus says the man who raised up on high. I mean, I'm sure David, as he's looking back on his life, looks at around at his kingdom, looks at his home, looks at all that God has brought him through. If you remember that that young man who stood against the giant Goliath, the young man on the run in the caves, uh, on the run from King Saul, there he is, he's just running for his life, trying to survive. And yet, look at what God has done. Look how God had raised up David. The anointed of the God of Jacob that uh, the fact that God put his anointing on David, David was was an impressive as a king and a leader because David was secure in who God called him to be. David understood that if God anointed me, then God will do things and carry everything out. He didn't fight for things for himself. He never raised his hand against Saul, who was the Lord's anointed. He let God take care of Saul. And it was a, a really impressive example for all of us to consider when we think when God has called us to something, we don't have to make it happen. We can let God make it happen. And David, David really set that example. And of course, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I, I, you can't help but when you read the Psalms of, uh, of the book of Psalms and how it ministers to your soul. The transparency that David gives throughout the Psalms. When he talks about his soul being downcast within him. When he talks about uh, the hard times, the good times, all, all the things that happen within his life, the praises, the, the meditations just upon the creation of God and what God's creation is doing and how it testifies to who God is. And, and actually, one of the things I love about David is as a warrior and as a king, he's a meditative man. He took time to, to think and consider God. He took time to ask questions about God and sing songs about God. And how wonderful it would be if we just even took time to sit and wait on the Lord, just listen or ask questions. I mean, all we have to do is just look outside at the creation and know when the sun rises in the morning, wow, it's a testimony to God. When the sun goes across the sky, it's a testimony to God that it doesn't deviate from its course, but it stays right on course. It's just a testimony to God when we walk along, along the street it's just amazing that we don't fly off the planet that that, that God just keeps us firmly planted right that, that we have this amazing thing called gravity which we don't even fully understand it's technically a theory of science um, and it's just incredible what 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 God has has done for us and and David just takes time to wait on the Lord. Notice this says verse two, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. David is a prophet of Israel. We we recognize that even in the New Testament, they refer back to David prophesied in the book of Acts, also in the Gospels. David prophesied that he was a prophet who spoke under the influence of the Spirit of God. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, and look what he spoke. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was something that all of our political leaders, councilmen, elected officials had to swear that they would rule uh, in the fear of God, that they would be just and rule in the fear of God, you know, we we all look at uh, politics and we get stirred up inside. We get upset because we feel abused oftentimes by politicians. Right? This is nothing new. It's been that way since the beginning. Because anytime man gets any bit of power, he'll end up using it to abuse it for himself or for his friends or do favors for this person or that person. And, and to, to find somebody who actually has the fear of the Lord and chooses to be a just man, recognizing that, oh, God's going to judge me for my decision-making, that's a rare person. It'd be wonderful. And, and actually, David understood this full well. David was not a perfect man course we've read about some of David's problems but if you remember when David was on the run from Absalom and Shammai came out to meet him and was chucking rocks at him and and basically yelling names at him and David's uh, guard wanted to go kill him David said no 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 it, you know I'm I'm under the judgment of the Lord David understood that he was under the judgment of the Lord for what he had done with Uriah and Bathsheba And so he fully understood that this is part of God's justice and I'm dealing with that punishment. Turn with me to the next chapter, chapter 24, because this has to do with that same theme of ruling in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 24, an interesting event happens. Verse 1 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army Therefore Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan, camped in Arorah, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahishim, Hodchi. They came to Danjan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities, of the Hivites and the Canaanites, then they went out to the south of Judah as far as Beersheba, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. So David here asked Joab to do this census, and it 's going to take them ten months to do this this census. And Joab actually says, "This I don't think this is a good idea, David. And David's word prevailed against Joab. Now, why wasn't this a good idea? Well, first of all, in the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David uh, to go number Israel and Judah. First Chronicles actually gives us another aspect to this story. In and, and 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says, now st- Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So I, I, I really think what happened here is Satan intended to tempt David to do this counting, this numbering of men, take this census of Israel, and it aroused the anger of the Lord against David. Did, did you know that? Did you know that your sin actually can arouse the anger of the Lord against you? I mean, sometimes we don't think about that, but that's what sin does. Sin arouses God's anger it, because, because God is a just God and God will do right. And so when, when, when you and I sin, when we act like there is no God, when we walk in rebellion against God, we are tempting God saying, you won't judge me. You won't do anything about this. And how, how dare we do that? Uh, the, the believer has uh, an amazing opportunity to boldly approach the throne of God through the, the wonderful gift and grace of Christ, that as we approach that throne of God, we can seek repentance and forgiveness from God when we sin. But when we walk in sin, we're just tempting God. We're saying that, God, you're not just, and you don't see these things. And that's why the, in the scriptures, first in 1 John, John it, it exhorts us to confess our sin because he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness and in that chapter in 1 John, chapter 1, there's a lot of conditional statements that state that if we claim to live in the truth but walk in darkness, we don't know him. But if we claim to to uh, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and, and we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. And so, so there's a... a a clear distinction of somebody who walks in darkness, walks in sin, and it doesn't matter what you claim. It doesn't matter if you claim you're a Christian or claim you're a zoastrian or whatever. It doesn't matter. You're one and the same. You're somebody who walks in rebellion against God, and, and you walk in darkness. So you can claim all you want. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a born again. But if you walk in sin, you're walking in rebellion. But, but the, the child of God is one who... They, they walk in the light as he is in the light. And when they stumble, they come to the Lord and confess it. And so Satan here had raised up against David to number Israel. Now, what's the big deal with numbering Israel? Uh, it, I don't, why, why would God get so mad that you're, you're going out taking a census? Don't we take a census? Uh, um, and uh, don't we get counted here in the U.S. and do all that? Well, there, there's a reason for it. And part of, I think, the reason here that we see was the end of the census. And in verse nine, it says that Joab gave the, the sum number of the people of the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and men of Judah were 500,000. Basically, it was like, how big is my army? That's what it was. Now, God had already set up that, that you were not to trust in chariots or horses or army size, but you're supposed to trust in the Lord. And recognize that the Lord will give you the victory. You don't do that by numbering and saying, okay, yeah, we have an army that we can take on on this army over here, or we can defend ourselves. And Israel actually makes a terrible mistake later on in their history where they don't seek counsel from God, but they go and they make treaties with the Egyptians. They go and make treaties with the Assyrians. They make all these treaties to to fight. and, And it works out terrible for them because God judges them for it. But more than that, God had already told uh, Israel what their number is. Do, do you remember what the number that God gave to Israel? He gave it actually to Abraham ahead of time. And the number that God gave about Israel was as many as the stars are in the sky, as many grains of sand on the seashore, that's your number, and no one's going to take it from you. God's already giving you this number. That, 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 that promise that God had already given to Abraham stated that you're not going to be wiped out off the planet. It doesn't matter if Nazi Germany rises up or, or, or Russia at the time during World War II and they try to destroy the Jews and wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. It's, it's not going to happen because God has already given your number. So why are you going around numbering? More than that, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 and 12, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. So what what is this telling us? This verse is actually telling us that, that the king of Israel does not own Israel. No man actually owns Israel. Israel is owned by God. And they belong to God. And that's why whenever you do take a census, there's a reason for a census. That census is supposed to be directed by God, but there should be a ransom for every man. There should be an offering given for every single man counted because they belong to God. They don't belong to a king. And the king can't take credit for Israel's numbers, but only God gets to take number and takes credit. So... By David doing this, he's really showing one, uh, you question his motives, that he's kind of trying to look and see how powerful he's become, how powerful Israel's become, whatever the case, but look at verse 10, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people, okay, that's that, that he has a lot of regret, He's, he's upset that he had done this. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him. And he said to him, you shall sev- seven years of you sh- uh, shall uh, s- said to him shall seven years of famine come to your come into your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you, or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So there's there's some options here. Now why does David get the option? What about the rest of Israel? Stop thinking like an American. Uh, you, you have to recognize the king. When Israel asked for a king, they were saying that we want this person to represent us. And, and God already had told them how taxing a king would be, but he said, fine, we'll do it. So, so rather than the prophet speaking on behalf of Israel, now the prophet speaks to the king and the king speaks on behalf of Israel. So they have, David has three options. He can either be on the run or have a three years of famine or he can, uh, or sorry, seven years of famine or he can have three months of fleeing from his enemies or three days of plague. So David said to Gad, Gad in verse 14, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now this is, I, 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 this is this goes back to David ruling justly in the fear of the Lord. This is one of those areas where David wasn't a perfect man, but he also recognized that that he's accountable to God. And he also said, look, if I can have seven years of famine or uh, I can be on the run from my enemy and they're not gonna be merciful. But the Lord our God, he's actually merciful. I'd rather fall into his hands and take the punishment. And this is something I appreciate about David. When he did sin, he took the punishment. He recognized that I had done this. And, and every time God punishes me, he, he, he's st- turning back towards him. And when, you, when we look at his legacy that he leaves, which we'll just see in a moment here, David left an incred- incredible legacy, especially when compared to the legacy of Saul, an incredible legacy for Israel, what David had done. So verse 15, "'So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel "'from the morning till the appointed time. "'From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died.'" And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented, there's the mercy of God, from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, that's going to be important. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Now David here is interceding on behalf of the people just like a good leader. He's interceding on behalf of them and saying, Lord God, I did this. This is my wrongdoing. Notice that the Lord relented from destroying more in Jerusalem. He took out 70,000 men. All right, David, you're going to trust in men. You're going to trust in chariots and horses. You're going to trust in your army. Let Let me just cut that down a little bit. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? David prays. Uh, take it out on me. And so, now let's talk about the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This is a name you're going to want to remember. Just right now, you can say threshing floor. Maybe make a note in your Bible. Uh, Solomon's temple, Jerusalem, Golgotha, Calvary, Abraham offered Isaac. There's all th- three big events that have happened there. L- verse 18, and Gad came that day to David and said, to him, go up, erect an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up uh, as the Lord commanded. Now Arunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arunah went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arunah said, Why is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy a threshing floor from you and to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arunah said, to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of oxen for wood. All these, O King Aruna, has given to the king. So David goes up to Aruna's threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor usually was at a higher elevation, and there was a reason for it. You want to catch the, the breeze as it comes up because the whole point of it is to throw up the wheat, and uh, as you throw up the wheat, it separates the chaff from the wheat. The chaff blows off and the wheat falls to the ground. And so it's good to have an area where there's wind coming through. Now, Aruna hears that David wants to buy this threshing floor. Now, this is on the mountains of Moriah. And I just want to back up real fast to Abraham. Abraham, God spoke to Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son, and go three days, journeying to the place I will show you in the mountains of Moriah. And there you'll offer your son, your only son, Isaac. And so Abraham had left from where he was and went to the mountains of Moriah. There when they arrived at the place, Abraham had told the servants who were with him, you wait here, I and the boy will go and worship the Lord and we'll come back. So Abraham put the wood on Isaac and uh, gave Isaac the fire, and he carried the knife. And Isaac, as, as Abraham was doing this, Isaac asked, Oh, Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, there's the knife. But, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. And so they went up to the, the, the mountain there. They built an altar. And then we read that, that Abraham bound up Isaac and placed him on the altar. Isaac was probably a young man at this point in time, and there he is being bound by his father to be sacrificed. Abraham was about to slay his son when an angel of the Lord spoke to him and told him to stop, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket there by his horns, a random ram that was was given by the Lord to Abraham to offer there. But what was really important was what Abraham was told on that mountain. Uh, we read that it's, God has given the name Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And it, there in the text of Genesis, it says, and on that mountain, it shall be provided. That's an important statement that was said, given to Abraham. Because we know that later on in the mountains of Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary, God would offer his own son as, as, as Abraham had acted out this with Isaac, But before that, we see that David here is looking to to, uh, intercede on behalf of the people of Israel on that mountain to offer sacrifices. And again, eventually, Solomon will build the temple there. So pretty special place. And so Arunah says, hey, I'll give you everything. Here's oxen. Here's the land. You take it all. Go ahead and take it. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So here's everything. You can have it. And uh, may God accept you. Verse 24, then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from the, uh, for you for a price. Uh, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with, wit- with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord. And burnt offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land. And the plague was withdrawn from Israel. It's so another point that we see about David understanding God's justice and the fear of the Lord that you can't offer offerings that don't belong to you. You can't give something to God that's his. Uh, if I'm gonna give an offering to God, it's gonna cost me something. I'm not gonna give something that doesn't belong to me. And so so David paid Aruna for what he needed. To make sure that this offering was for the lord from to the Lord from him on behalf of the people there on that threshing floor, so uh, let 's go back over to chapter twenty three and it says um, verse four and uh, and he shall be like uh, the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, basically. This, uh, as you rule before the people uh, in the fear of the Lord and just, you'll be like that beautiful sun in the morning. So that give us such clarity and, uh, and uh, warmth and all the things that the sun, the purpose for the, which the sun was, was uh, created for us. A morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Although my house is not so with God... Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. And that's basically just David saying, my household was not worthy of God, uh, but yet God has chosen to make this covenant. Now we're gonna see him talk about that everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So David gives the psalm. Now we're going to move into the list of mighty men. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, uh, first we have Josheb, Beth the Tachemite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Inzite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. That's a mighty man. And after, he w- after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. <laughs> Got to laugh when you read that. The, the Ahohite, one of the three men, mighty men with David, when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema the son of Age, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So the first three in the list of 37 mighty men are set apart. And they're all mighty men. Now, I want to remind you that in 1 Samuel 22:2, we read of these mighty men that they, they weren't always such. In fact, we, we read that, that everyone who was uh, in distress, who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to David. There's the three Ds there. Distress, debt, and discontented, uh, and, and these are the guys that came to David, um, distressed, Discontented and in debt—not exactly the guys, the the top tier guys uh, that you'd want to choose for your team. They're they're definitely not the A team. You know, when, when people are lining up to choose who sides for dodgeball, you are like, not that one, not that one. Oh, that one's really good. You know, no. David got all the the down and outs, the downcast, the deplorables, however you want to label them. But these discontented, distressed, and indebted men become incredible men. Now, what makes up a mighty man? I just want to take a moment and talk to you about this because I think it's something we can all learn. First of all, don't focus on their feats. When we read about the mighty men, we're tempted to focus on their feats, what they did. And it's incredible. I mean, when we just read about this, killing 800 men at one time, that's intense. That guy is a a manimal, right? He's He's not just a man, he's a manimal. He's like... He's, he's ferocious and you're like, how do you take on 800 men at one time? And we're so tempted to look at their feats, but it's really about who they are that, that is the reason why they have these incredible feats uh, that they do. It's about the, the character of the individual. And the person, and I want to say this about being a mighty man of God or a mighty woman of God, this is really an invitation for you and I to do incredible things in God's service because of who you are in Christ and, and who you are as your character. The first thing we, we know about these mighty men is they were faithful men. They were faithful men. I mean, that's one of the things we're going to see in this list is these men are so dedicated and devoted to David, the Lord's anointed, because he is the Lord's anointed. They recognize that they have a calling to support the Lord's anointed David, and they do it because of who, he, uh, of who God has chosen to be their king. And I think when we consider the fact that we are to be faithful uh, to our God and to to our faith and faithful to Him and fulfilling what He's called us to do, it's not about having a great feat, but just being faithful. And we'll see that here when we talk about this field of beans. I mean, these lentil field. This uh, third mighty man, listed in The first list was the Philistines had gathered in a the troop. There was a piece of ground full of lentils, so the people all fled from the Philistines. So everybody fled. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. This man was there in the middle of a bean field. Now, it's an important source of food. If an enemy army comes in and and burns all your crops, I mean, that's a a problem. But of all the places and the times to stand, you and I might look at that with some, some wisdom and go... Yeah, okay, well, everybody left. Why am I going to go defend their bean field? Why am I going to stand there? Of all the places I could defend, I should go to David's side or be there. But no, this man understood the whole idea of being faithful. And he stood there in that bean field. And as a result, he's considered a mighty man of God. Sometimes God calls you to do things that seem just minimal tasks. They don't seem fun. They don't seem exciting. But God just wants you to be faithful. If he calls you to do something, just be faithful with the task. Be faithful in your place of employment. Just be faithful. Not being faithful to get some sort of recognition from men, but you be faithful to your God. Let God take care of the feats that he'll put before you. And I'll tell you, it's, if you commit yourself to just being a faithful person to God and for his work, you'll see that God will start to do great things. I also want to point out to to you that mighty men stand when everyone flees. That's an important aspect because mighty men understand this deep conviction to do what is right before God, even if the whole world is telling you to run away or do the opposite. I can't help but think of Athanasius who stood there uh, against uh, everybody at the time who was saying that Christ, Christ was not... God incarnate, and he fought for this this doctrine of who Christ was. And he was even questioned on Athanasius, will you still stand for this when the whole world stands against you? And Athanasius replied, it'll be Athanasius versus the world. Because that is a mighty man of God, someone who stands because they know it's truth. We're seeing the church under attack. We're seeing people under attack to fold under the pressures of the culture versus standing in conviction because knowing that God's word is truth and God is just, and so therefore we stand as a result of it. And sadly, we're starting to see Christians who are are fleeing. They're running away from the bean field. And my question to you is, as people of God, will you flee or will you stand in the bean field, even though it's just a hill of beans, so to speak, right? Right? Uh, I think it's important for you to make that decision now whether you'll be a faithful person of God or you'll be the one fleeing. Because I'll tell you right now, if you're the one who wants to be cool, wants to go along with the culture, wants the easy route, this is probably not the church for you. I'll just tell you that right now. Uh, I'm not saying that for for props. I'm just telling you because we're not going to be that kind of church. We're a church that's going to stand with conviction. And, um, and we want faithful people of God. Spurgeon um, <clears throat> saw that Eliezer, uh, Spurgeon writes this, in his solitary stand until victory, he was a tremendous example for believers today. Solitary prowess is expected of believers. I hope we may breed in the place of a, a race of men and women who know the truth, and know also what the Lord claims at their hands and are resolved by the help of the Holy Spirit to war a good warfare for their Lord, whether others will stand by their side or not. I love these men. These men are encouraging to me because there they are standing. Look at verse 13. Then three of the 30... Sorry, my normal clock's not up there, so I wasn't sure where it was at. Then three of the... Thanks, buddy. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time... And, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to say one more thing about this. Uh, Notice that uh, Eliezer, he arose and was attacked. uh, But it says that he, basically, his hand was so weary that the sword stuck in his hand. And the Lord brought about a great victory. The reason I want to point that out is mighty men don't have superpowers or endurance. They're just normal men. And I love the fact that here Eliezer is. He's got the sword in his hand. He's fighting with it. And the sword basically is like stuck to his hand. I don't know if you've ever felt that experience. I've actually felt that not with a sword but with a hammer. Uh, You know, I I used to work in construction and, you know, swinging a hammer all day. You can build up, you know, swinging a hammer. Some of you guys are working construction so you know what that's like. But then when you don't do it for a time and you pick up a framing hammer and you start framing with it, a couple hours in, you're like, oh, man, my forearm's totally cramping up. My my hand's like locked onto this hammer. Like, like you're not even actually trying to hold it anymore. Your hand just locks in there, and you're just like, well, I hope it doesn't fly out, and you just keep going. But, uh, but I, I've experienced that, but I, I love the fact that it just points that out about this man because it's letting us understand that these aren't supernatural men. They're spiritual men. They're men who have an understanding of their God, and God's anointed. And they stand, they stand with him. All right, verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. This is when David was in the caves. And a troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines. Uh, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it for me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Now, I love the story of these three guys. They hear their king just say, oh man, would I love to have a drink from that well. Now, I know it kind of sounds exceptional because we're so used to turning on a faucet or drinking from our refrigerator, depending on your preference, uh, and, and not think it's a big deal, but... I've been places in the world and drank from different wells in the world, and there is a difference. I'll tell you, we were in Nepal, in this, I don't know, uh, far out in the country of Nepal, and I was filtering the water for us, and it tasted like blood. There was so much iron content in the water, you couldn't filter it out. And I kept checking my filter for the integrity of it, doing the check, and going, nope, it just just tastes terrible. And we're drinking this water. And it just felt like you're drinking blood all the time. And, and, and in, in that moment, I said, oh, that I might have the water of Kathmandu, you know. Uh, so so I, I can kind of understand where David's coming from, that he's just longing for the water from his hometown well of Bethlehem. But these three mighty men understand. They, did, they just kind of overhear him. He didn't ask him to go do this. They hear him overhear him, and they're like, hey, let's go get our king some water. Let's encourage him. I love the fact that they just want to encourage the Lord's anointed. And they, go to, they just step out to do this. And, and, and it's not so much, again, about them trying to make a name for themselves, but it's them just trying to encourage their king. And, and uh, so they break through the, these three guys. They bring him back water. And when David receives this water, you know David wanted to drink it. I mean, he'd been longing for it. But he said, No. I'm going to pour this out to the Lord. So he pours it out to the Lord. And, and I, I know you might be thinking of like, oh, wow, that's kind of a bummer. These guys go and risk their life. But, but David gave this wonderful offering to God. Far be it from me, Lord. These men risk their lives. I'm giving this water to you, God. That's the heart of David. So, so uh, the, I love these three guys. These things were done by the three mighty men. Verse 18, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief uh, of another three. He lifted his spear against the hundred men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became uh, their captain. However, he did not attain to their first. Now, Abishai is the brother of Joab. Joab is one of the mighty men, but I, I just don't think he got listed here because he's all throughout the book of First uh, and Second Samuel. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from uh, Cab's Hill, who had done many deeds. He'd killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Lion-like heroes. These men were incredible warriors of Moab, and he'd killed them. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to to him with a staff, uh, wrested uh, the spear out of wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So basically these mighty men, there's a ranking here that we're going through. Now, listen, this is a big deal. I I don't know why he went into a snowy pit or a, a, a pit on a snowy day, to kill a lion, my guess is he probably ended up in a pit on a snowy day with a lion and he killed him. But we just don't know. But we know he killed this lion. Well, to top that off, he then uh, wrestles the spear out of an impressive Egyptian's hand and kills that man. Now, understand this is just not a normal Egyptian. To make this list, you've got to be have some great feat in battle and, and, and some great faithfulness. And so that's one of the reasons why he made this list. He wrestled the spear out of this impressive, this giant Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. It's pretty pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, all right, verse 24. Asahel, the brother of Joab, that's his other brother, was one of the 30. Elehanan, the son of Doda, Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema, the Herodite. Elisha, the Herodite. Helez, the uh, Palatite. Ira, the son of Ekesh, the Tekite, Abiezer, the Anathathite. <laughs> Anathathite, this is hard, Mebunai, the Hushishite, Zalman, and uh, Aholite, Mahariah, uh, the Netaphite, <laughs> Halab, the son of, I practice all these and now I'm slaughtering because I'm getting nervous, uh, uh, H- Halab, the son of Banam, the Netaphite, Etai, the son of Rebi from Gibeah and of the children of Benjamin, Benaniah of Pirithanite, Hidai from the brooks of Gash, Abai-Albon the Arbathite, Azamaveth the Barhumite, Elishab and Shalabanite, the sons of Jesha, and, and this list is going to continue on. I'm going to skip down for a moment as I've done this and uh, we're going to get to... Um, uh, Birathite, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, in this list that's mentioning the, the rest of these mighty men, this 37 of all, you have, uh, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Uh, now, this man is notable among the 30 men because he was the father of Bathsheba. That's, that's why I wanted to bring your attention to him. Uh, now, Ahithophel, if you remember, was that counselor that 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 uh, went up against David uh, when David was left and remember he counseled uh, Absalom to sleep with david 's concubines and now we 're not you can 't say with full confidence that this is the same Ahithophel, but i 'm pretty sure that 's the reason why. He was so quick and so bitter against David and swished over to Absalom because David had taken his daughter and killed his son-in-law. Uh, so that kind of gives some insight to that. Uh, we also have noted here that Uriah the Hittite. Of course, that's the one who David had murdered uh, as, because of his sin with Bathsheba. But 37 in all, uh, these remarkable men were the foundation of David's greatness and reign. Uh, Morgan writes this. More than all his victories against outside foes, the influence of David's life and character on the men nearest to him testify to his essential greatness. And I want to just close us with that idea that David was a great man and a great king for Israel. And part of that testimony of his greatness is these men. Remember again, like we said, these were the, the destitute, the indebted, the discontent. These were the deplorables of Israel. But look at what they did under David's leadership. Great mighty men, the last thing that mighty people do under God is they raise up people. They really encourage people to live for God. And I want to encourage you, men especially that are listening here, men who are in charge of your households, I want to really challenge you to be a mighty man of God. That means that you are encouraging your spouses, you're encouraging your children, to walk in faith in the Lord, that you're setting an example in your household for what that looks like. Not that you're ruling over your household, but you're setting the example of faith and standing with conviction before the Lord. And and that's what I really wanna encourage you with. These men were great men because they had a great leader. And and I wanna encourage you men to be great leaders in your homes as well. Really model Christ to your spouses and your children. With that said, that closes us off with Second Samuel. Let's go ahead and pray. Yeah, it's fun to end in Second Samuel. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this night. And uh, we thank you for this time in your word together. And Lord, may, may we all become mighty people for your kingdom. Lord, let us just be faithful with the beans. And Lord, uh, we just want to bring glory to you in all things. So Lord, we ask for forgiveness for sin. For those of you that have been walking in darkness and not in the light, as he is in the light. I want you to confess that sin right now to the Lord. Lord, forgive me for, not, for tempting you to think that you're not a just God. I confess my sin to you now. Forgive me. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me on that cross. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for your promise that you will cast that sin as far as the east is from the west. We thank you for that, Lord. And now, God, we just pray you'd, you'd bless us as we worship you. We pray that you receive this song of praise amen. from these mighty people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Don't we need to hear that? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen. Amen.